Pastor Pete has asked me to, to share as uh, we're breaking down our, our values of be with God and go with Jesus and walk with the Spirit and love others. And uh, we're going to be breaking down the biblical perspectives of those things. You know, the Bible really tells us what to do. Our, our values is how we see we need to implement those things in our daily life, in our family, in our marriage, in the church, those particular biblical truths. We call those the values. It's the, it's the why of what we do. What we do is how we implement it. And uh, next week, I'll actually be teaching again. They're going to let me speak two Sundays in a row, and they've let me out of my cage, and I'm really excited. They, pick, they give me three meals a day, and uh, they're taking very good care of me. But uh, next week I'll be teaching again on really what the, the, Bible, the, the Bible teaches us about what I'm going to call disciplines of grace. And really back to that particular theme of uh, being with God and really what the Bible tells us is really required for us to pursue him and to get to know him and develop an intimate relationship with him. You know, John 17, 3 says says, for this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we always think eternal life is when we pass from this state to the other, but we're experiencing eternal life now, and it's in the context of relationship of knowing Jesus. Paul said that I may know him. And so knowing him is just more than hearing his voice for something. It, it's, it goes beyond just reading your Bible. It goes beyond praying. It goes beyond going to church, it goes, goes beyond a lot of things. And I want to talk about this thing, what the Bible actually says, what we need to do to actually pursue this thing called a relationship with God. The prophetic word today appreciated Janet's word and uh, really called us to kind of, this is for us to dig in and really get to know God personally. And his hand will be on us. His favor will be on us. And uh, when I asked today, Pastor Pete, I asked him, you know, uh, what he wanted me to share. He, he really gave me two topics. And so you, you try to work with this one. He goes, I want you to, <clears throat> I want you to uh, speak on going with Jesus and, and really how the present generation of adults will pass that passion and fire and vision to the next generation. And uh, well, that's a, that's a great title. How do, I, how do I put that all together? Go with Jesus, but make sure you bring others along. I, I, I couldn't come up with a phrase. So what I, my title of my sermon today is follow me as I follow the lamb. And so I'm really going to talk to everybody, but my beginning of my sermon is really going to bend towards my Gen Xers and my, my boomers, and I might even have a builder or two. Uh, someone was born before World War II and went through that era okay, here today, and how we, I want to talk to you a little bit, and I'll be bent towards that, and really to everybody, and then we're going to talk about how we take what I'm going to preach on and pass that on to the next generation. You notice we had a kind of a younger team up here today, and uh, we, got, we got young people in the sound booth, we got young people around the church serving every quarter. We have kind of a generation Sunday where the, the, those young people involved in our middle school and high school and even, even our college age ministry are serving around the church and we appreciate them. And so this is what we emphasize. I'm going to just take you to a, a, a few verses out of the book of Revelation without stepping on anybody's toes how you look at the book of Revelation. It's always a dangerous part of the book to read it. You always get reactions. I've always thought that and always thought that, but just hang with me. We're going to be real practical with this thing. All right. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. 
No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these, okay, the scripts describing the character, the life of these 144,000. Okay, it was these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, they weren't a bunch of middle schoolers and teenagers that never got married yet and they had sexual relations. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about purity of heart. Okay, and it's these who have not defiled themselves with women, therefore they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits. For God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, this is a picture of the glorious church. You say, well, what about the 144,000? Well, the Bible has a lot of numbers that are stamped throughout of it, and those numbers have significance. The number 12 usually represents government, and really it represents the fullness of what God wants to do in you and I and what he wants to do and because of the cross of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, he wants to accomplish in the earth and he wants to do in the human race. Okay, as you look at the book of Revelation, the last three chapters, you're going to find a lot of 12s all over the place. Everything is 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. A lot of 12s even throughout the book of Revelation. And so I want to talk about this and uh, what this church Possessed, because if this is what God's after, this is what I want to possess. This is what I want to make sure that I'm living in. First, they, 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 possess, they possess a song no one else can sing. I refer to that in the service. Songs birth from regeneration. You can't copy that. The one thing Dick Iverson used to emphasize with us all the time at Bible Temple is the one thing the church cannot, excuse me, the world cannot copy were the voices of God's people. So one thing they couldn't imitate, and I, and I believe he's right. First time I heard Christians singing, real born-again, excited Christians about Jesus, I had never witnessed any type of enthusiasm, any type of life that, that I had heard. I've been in choirs, you know, in high school and all this, but I had never heard heart like I heard the first time I heard Christians singing. It, I, I noticed it. It took me back. Here about four years ago, five years ago, Sue and I were in Kauai with uh, the church there with, with Aaron and uh, Shannon and uh, at this Kauai Beach Resort, the hotel that you stay in, they had a concert like on um, this one night was kind of our night off. It was Judy Collins having a concert at that. How many people, boomers, remember Judy Collins? I've looked at life from both sides now. Okay, those are all nice. Okay, but Judy Collins now in her early 70s and a hippie and everything else. Nothing worse than an old hippie. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she gets up there half the night. She tuned her guitar. She and did a lot of political, you know, bantering and everything else. Obviously, she didn't share my view of politics, but that's okay. I really like Judy Collins' music, and it was just kind of reminisce a little bit of the '60s. It didn't have much life to it, and I spent half the night, and Sue spent half the night listening to Judy Collins tune her guitar. <laughs> At the end, she sang "Amazing Grace." Now, Amazing Grace, one of the greatest songs ever birthed in the kingdom of God. But it just didn't have the same punch. Professional singer, you know, probably Grammy Awards. It just was not the same. They may be taking a, a, a saint in this church, you know, that has a worn-out Bible but not a worn-out life. 
They may not be able to sing like Judy Collins, but that song will sound much different out of them than it did through somebody else that doesn't know Jesus. Okay, they possess a song no one else could sing. Okay, they keep themselves from idols. When it's talking about their virgins and their pure and all those things, it's talking about they're they're free from the influence of the world. When we honor the world and the world's systems, the world's philosophies and values above God, it really is an idol. It's more important to us than God is. It's an idol. Idol doesn't have to be some ghoulish thing, you know, some creature that's just hellish and, and ghoulish and just terrifies us that we pop up on Halloween, okay? An idol, an idol is anything more important to us than God. America has idols. We have American idol. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> we have idols that mean, of things in our culture that kind of are abstract that actually got our heart more than God has our heart. And we have to constantly make sure that we obey John's admonition, you know, children, keep yourselves from idols. We've got to make sure that we're free from counterfeit gods in our own life. These, this, gener- this particular glorious church, that was, that was them. The third is that they, they lived their lives as an offering to God. It says that they were first fruits for God and the lamb. First fruits was a beginning of the harvest offering where there was an offering. We are to offer ourselves. Romans 12 says we're to offer ourselves. We live a life of offering because of what he did for us. And the fourth thing is this, that they follow the lamb. This is the one I want to emphasize. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, this church, I'm talking about the church we just read about, this church is a, is a church of disciples. It's a church of followers. It is these that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So here's our key question today for all of us to answer, and that is this. Where's the Lamb going in your life? We talk about this phrase, go with Jesus, and Pete likes things real simple, and I appreciate it because it's easy to quote, I always want to break things down. So everyone goes on, we're going with Jesus, and I'm still in my office. What does that all mean? Give me my books. Go, let's break down go. Let's go break down with. Let's go Jesus, and where is he going? And that's what happens to me. I'm a miserable person. People say hi to me, and Bob didn't say hi back. I'm having a theological argument in my brain. I'm debating constantly. I'm like a lawyer against a lawyer inside of me. I was a child of a schizophrenic, and I guess I am too. (laughs) Now, I want to talk about five areas where Jesus is going in all of our lives. Five. First is this. He is going where his spirit is guiding you. One of my favorite stories is the story of Jonah. I love this. I find it hugely humorous. I see myself in it. And uh, I think it's a practical application for our lives. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. He's saying, arise, go to Nineveh. Now, that's a pretty specific direction. Go to Nineveh. What part of go do you not understand, Jonah? What part of Nineveh do you not understand? Nineveh, I believe, was 755 miles north of Jerusalem. Okay, it was north, maybe even a little northeast. Okay, I want you to go where the Assyrians are. Assyrians weren't really nice people, by the way. They actually used the skins of their dead enemies as wallpaper. 
Okay, this was, not, this was not a nice bunch of people. They were a tough bunch. There was a kind of a wild, hellish gang to the Assyrians. And God says, I want you to go to them and uh, that great city and call out against it. I want you to call out against it for their evil has come up before me. I want you to go to Nineveh to do that. Now, we may think that he resisted this because he was afraid what was going to happen to him. That could have been there, but that really wasn't it. When you read the four chapters of Jonah, he really didn't like Assyrians, and he knew that God was a merciful God, and he knew probably the anointing of his own ministry to bring people to repentance, okay? And these guys that he hated would repent, and God would show him mercy. That's what he was ticked off about. Okay, so there's a real racist motive here. I don't, like, I don't like Ninevites and I hate Assyrians. I am not going. I am not going. And so what did he do? Well, the story goes on here. Being a very obedient uh, prophet to God, really knowing him. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish is really interesting because it's really 3,000 miles away west from Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. No, I'm going to go 3,000 miles away to Spain. That's where I'm going to go. You want me to go there? I'm going to go way over there. And it says here that he, when he fled, he fled from the presence of the Lord. It's interesting reading commentaries on this because a lot of even Christian scholars don't see what the Puritans and some of our early revivalists called the Coram Deo, the manifest presence of God. Okay, if you come to a place where you've experienced Jesus showing up and Jesus doing things like in revival and, and waves of healing and great services and things are happening, there's Jesus is in the house. You know what I'm talking about? He's in the house. He, you can understand there's a thing called the omnipresence of God. David said, I made my bed in hell, and he, you're there, he's everywhere. Jeremiah says, am I not God? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Okay, God is everywhere. He's the creator because he's the creator. But he's also near us. He's far and he's near. And when he's near us, he favors us. If we're in obedience to his will, he anoints us. He, he, he does miracles through us. He sets up divine appointments. He, he does things. Heaven comes on earth and we experience it. We're touched by heaven. And we've all got our stories and great stories and great testimonies of the nearness of God. But he, he ran from the personal presence of God. He ran where Jesus was in Jonah's life. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. So he paid the, the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I found the message. Eugene Peterson was funny on this one. I, th I thought this was funny about a bad attitude of a prophet. But Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. How many people have ever run away from God? Run away. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went on board, joining those going to Tarshish as far away from God as he could get. Well, the nearness of God is God will show up at those places when he's near us, and he reveals himself. He does things for us, especially when we're in obedience to how he's leading us. There's a favor because we've pleased him. You know, um, a lot of people teach that when the voice of God came upon Jesus, the voice of the Father, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that they say Jesus had not done anything yet. Well, that's not true. 
He was a 30-year-old man who subjected himself to his parents, who lived a very righteous life. He was a good man, prepared himself for ministry. Yes, he hadn't done his ministry yet, but it doesn't mean he hadn't pleased the Father. He wasn't a rebellious youth. He, he went about his father's business in the age of 12. He was sold out to this thing. And uh, when God will reveal himself at times when we are obedient to his assignment and where he is. The Spirit of God, you know, we see in the Old Testament, the, the hand of the Lord was on him. The Spirit of God came upon them. There was something of the presence of God. The fire, pillar fire, the Shekinah glory, the cloud by day, the fire by night, all those things of God being pleased with his people and dwelling, uh, dwelling among them. Jonah was running from his call. He was running from his prophetic office. Thus he ran from where God's presence was for him. Second place that Jesus is going in your life and my life, he's going to where his heart is. He's going to where his heart is. Psalm 2, verse 7 8. That's why I got these scriptures up here because I'm going to throw a lot at you. David proclaimed, the anointed King David, he, he proclaimed what God said to him. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now the New Testament says this, that this pointed to Jesus in his resurrection and his ascension, in his high priestly ministry of what the Father now will give him as a result of his sacrifice. Guess what he gives him? He gives him the nations. What's his, what's his high priestly ministry praying for? He's praying for the nations. It's his heart for the nations. It's, it's, where, it's where Jesus' heart is, the people of the world. In the United States of America, in Hazeldale, Washington, Battleground, you know, Camas, wherever you made your trip here today, he, he's, that's his heart. Or Timbuktu, whatever, in California, or way out in some Central Asia mountain with people living in yurts. Okay, that's where his heart's at. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. That's what Jesus asked for. That's where his heart is. You can't love Jesus and ignore the nations. You can't. You know, and I've, I've taken a, we've, we're known, obviously, as a mission-based church. And doing things that people always pick my brain, like, how do you guys do that? Well, we paid a price for it. I had many people sit down. Bob, we're a local church, a local church, a local church. Okay? You're not a missionary over here. Okay? We're local. But as a local church, we have a responsibility. We're not the answer, but we are part of the, the answer. I'll never forget a, a, a former member of Bible Temple visited our church service here. And, uh, you know, every church has weird people. You know, I'm weird. We're here. She's a little bit different. And she was here, and we had a service, and she made a comment card and put it in the offering. So the staff shared it with me on Monday morning. And the comment was this. Bob has to make up his mind if he wants to be a pastor or if he wants to be a missionary. He's got to make up his mind. Well, I don't kind of take that particular perspective, I, I don't see a conflict between being a pastor and having a heart for the world. What I'm, what I'm actually trying to do is lead people to live a biblical life. Because if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you have zero passion, heart for what God is doing in the earth, 
I don't think you're completely connected to Jesus the way you need to be connected to him. You think you know him, but you may need to know him more. He loves the nations. That's what he asked the Father for. That's the reward of his sacrifice. The third place where Jesus is going in your life and mine is he's, he's where grace is working in your life. So this is going to look different for each of us. And I know I got a complex scripture here, but there's a biblical principle here that I want you to wrap into your own life. Paul's talking in Galatians 2 about his own relationship with, with the fathers of the church and when, after he got saved, the apostolic team, and uh, the grace that was on him and the grace that was on Peter. And they, had, they, had, they, they were after the same thing, but they had different graces on them. And he says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumc uncircumcised, in other words, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, to the Jews. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Now I have a, I have a son-in-law who's, who's pastoring in Los Angeles, established a church called Zoe Church LA, and uh, he's down there, and he's on TV a lot, and I, I don't like it. They, they sometimes call him a celebrity pastor. Knowing my son-in-law, he'll have rich and poor in his house. He'll have famous and just the most normal person in the world. He loves all people, but he does have a grace to get into the hearts and the minds of, of uh people that we know in the world of celebrities and the news and he just has a way it's a it's a grace there's a grace someone's got to lead them to Jesus you know someone has to and so you know he might say well Bob you're preaching around this happened preaching around Billy Bush you guys remember Billy Bush okay back that he worked for NBC and he got fired over the whole thing that happened in his interview with Donald Trump and and he was a broken man, and he gave his life to Jesus in, in Chad's church, and he's going to be there tomorrow. And after I'm done preaching, he wants to meet you, and here's a guy who was in shorts and a polo shirt with his two daughters, and he just gave me a big hug, and he's just a broken man, but someone's got to reach them. Someone's got to touch them. Jesus loves Hollywood people too. It's kind of slow amen on that. Okay, but, uh, <laughs> but he does. He does. Jan was, where are you, Jan? You wave at me, you hear? Okay, he's, She's, she's doing something else. She's praying for me. That was, I can't see. Jan, you got to make, you got to yell. There, there you go. Man, getting old. All right, Jan, you've been praying back there. You've been praying back there, right? Appreciate that so much. I feel, I feel it. So that's good. Lord says you can stop. No. This, um, you were in Hollywood just this last week, praying. Dick Eastman, other great intercessors were down there. Come on, Jesus loves people even in that realm. There was a grace on Paul to the Gentiles. And so when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Isn't it kind of interesting that Jesus kind of reversed this whole thing with what you would expect, how he would use each man? I would not look at Peter being a great apostle to the Jews, okay? He wasn't known to be trained in rabbinical schools, and he wasn't, he was perceived as an uneducated man. That was their perception of him. He just seems like that wouldn't be his, his gift bent. Paul, you know, studied under Gamaliel, Pharisee of Pharisees. He seemed to be a lot better candidate for the Jews than the Gentiles. Well, Paul really didn't have a great ministry with the Jews. Have you noticed that as you look at the book of Acts? There wasn't a whole lot of grace there. 
be like someone, you know, taking over the youth group, and he basically had to go while well, I hung all 50 of them that night. Yeah. Not a grace with teenagers. It's interesting what Jesus does. He always seems to switch things, doesn't he? Like a cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The great cross that those of us who were full of sin became the righteousness of God. The great exchange. So sometimes it just does the opposite. You may, I hate Beverly Hills, and he may send you down there. You know, you may be in the middle of urban America, Manhattan Island, Broadway, everything else. I want you to go to the woods. There's a logging com community in the Appalachian Mountains. I want you to pastor a church of 17 people there. Where is Jesus going? Where there's a grace operating in your life and my, your grace may be prayer, your grace may be teaching, your grace may be giving, your grace may be support, encouragement, discipling, your, my counseling intercession. It takes all of our tools to do what Jesus wants to do where his heart is. So we got to do it within our grace. The fourth thing is this, he is where he is working among a people or region. Now, I'm going to actually be doing a class. You know, we have School of Ministry coming up. We got our community groups being birthed here in the month of February. And I'm going to start, I don't know the exact date, probably in about two weeks. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start teaching a class on basically how God speaks. I'm actually really concerned about this because I'm finding that, uh, that people got, like God speaks this way, these two, three ways. But he actually has a lot of ways in which he speaks. And I want us to make sure that we don't cancel out all these and just, I got my two or three marbles in here. It's a burden on my heart. But look at this. Look at this. Now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, were, who, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Those were Hellenists were Greeks that became, that became proselytized into the Jewish faith, but they come from Greek heritage. Well, did you know that basically Greeks would probably know more Greeks? Okay, Gentiles will know Gentiles. Okay. I don't think the Jews had a great access. I don't think that was their oikos to reach into circles of, of, of Gentiles. They were too separated. I mean, look what God had to do in Acts 10 just to get Peter to get to the house of Cornelius. Wouldn't be a real harvest field for them. But all of a sudden, they're getting touched, and the virus, I'll use that word, the gospel spread to Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and notice what they did. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, we think, you know, for me to move, I got to get a word. I didn't, I didn't get a word. I didn't get a word. You don't need a word. You got a revival going on. I, I feel a check in my spirit. Cash it. There's a revival going on. There's a, there's, there's a revival going. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to get a word. God is doing something, and you're a believer. His heart is there. That's all you need. You go. If we had all of a sudden, let's just say Don Rao, one of her little revival, you know, passions, all of a sudden she calls the church up. She says, I had 500 kids give their life to Jesus today. I need help. And I call up somebody in the church. Hey, we need your help. Can you get down there tonight at Prairie? You know, Bob, I'm just, the Lord's really got me in a place where he just really wants me to just, really be balanced and really work on my rhythms. And I really put a lot of boundaries around my life. And I just don't think it's the right thing for me right now. False. False. There's a revival going on. 
Barnabas didn't go pray about it. He goes, I don't know, apostles. You know, I just, I don't think that's where I'm fitting. Bunch of Gentiles just gave themselves to Jesus in Antioch. We need help. There's, there's no praying. Go. Be like us having 500 babies out in the parking lot. Just dropped at the doorstep. We could really use your help. Well, you know, I've just been really tired, and I got boundaries. Okay. No, no, they got babies. We need everyone to pick up a baby. Okay. This is a life and death situation. You don't have to pray about it. You don't even have to be in a good place. You think pastoring, I get up every morning, oh, what a beautiful morning. No. <laughs> you just serve. It's just what you do. The general call. God is doing something, and you can't ignore it. Fifth place where Jesus is in our life is, is where the poor of the earth dwell. And Job's final defense in his book, the book of Job, as his friends are accusing him that he's suffering because he's unrighteous. He says, no, I lived righteously. There has to be a deeper reason why I'm suffering this way. This was his final defense of his righteousness. He says, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. And so even people dying blessed me. They may have even given me over their widow or whatever that they blessed me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was a father to the needy. And I searched, look at this, I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. It was a lifestyle, not a divine appointment. Was it like, whew, God just really, really led? He may have. But if he didn't, it's still the poor. Now, I recognize you can't take on the poor of Vancouver. You can't take the poor on the whole poor of Africa. But we all can do something, can't we not? You say, well, what am I to do with, you know, somebody, you know, some kid with malaria, you know, in Uganda? Well, Bob, I got enough issues. $15 will buy a mosquito net. Save the kid's life. Is it that simple? It's that simple. What am I to do about this and do about that? There's people all over the world. I, I, Job, Job says this, I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. Strangers, people I was in contact with. You know, we have the old joke at the table, eat it, you know, there's kids starving in Africa. Well, give it to them. <laughs> no, we still have a responsibility for children starving in Africa. One time we had a gathering of Latinos from our church at my house. And uh, we, we went around and I said, what's the strangest food you've ever eaten? And we had one of our Latino sisters in our church says, I, I ate sheetrock. And of course, I thought it was kind of funny. And then afterwards, Pasquale educated me. That's what you eat when you don't have food. I searched out the cause of those I did not know. And so you, between your relationship with Jesus and how he directs you, the one thing he will direct you about is he will direct you about those who have no father. They, they are crying for help and they need whatever you can do within the grace that God's given you. It's just not something, that's where Jesus is. When did I see you? 
Win, win, win. Well, when you did it to the least of my brothers, you, you did it to me. Now, you may be sitting here and you're thinking, Bob, I'm 55 and I'm 65 and I'm 75 and, and you might be saying I made mistakes or, you know, it's late in the game and I've always been a coaster. It's really too late to be zealous. That belongs to the, to the youth. Well, it's never too late and no failure is too great that you cannot get into the game. Let me tell you about my neighbor, Jeff Tysling. Some of you may remember Jeff. And uh, Jeff um, was one of those guys, he could just, you could give him a truck, like a beat-up pickup truck, and he would find a way just to make a mass amount of money out of it. He just knew how to flip things, and he knew how to take things, and you do entrepreneurial businesses and make a mass of money. Clever guy. One night, we were out in my front yard. The kids are all playing. It's a nice spring night. Jeff comes by with his wife walking across the street, uh, and, uh, and uh, we were getting ready to go see the first Spider-Man movie. It's real important kingdom stuff. <laughs> he says, Bob, I need to talk to you. I'm taking my kids to the movie, but I gotta go see Spider-Man. And, uh, but uh, let me come by tomorrow. I knew something was wrong. Got there the next day, and he sat and he says, listen, I've been diagnosed with liver cancer. They're giving me only so much time to live. And, uh, I, and uh, I said, so you want to meet with me about where you stand with God? He goes, yes. I led him to Jesus that way. He got baptized right down there. Jeff Tysling, in the next two, two and a half years, he was one of the most generous Christians I have ever met in my whole entire life. I mean, he, he bought widows things. He gave money here. He was like... He was like Ebenezer Scrooge in a Charles Dickens novel. He has this, has this encounter where he's just changed overnight. He was changed overnight. Just gave the shirt off his back. He, and it was just unbelievable what he did in just a short amount of time. And then the cancer got the best of him and he went to heaven. It's never too late. You know, Samson did more in his last hour than he did his whole life. I want to challenge all of us. We can get into this game, however God graces us to do that. Now, my point is that when you follow the Lamb, take the next generation with you. Let's not leave them behind. Now, here's the issue. This can be very, very intimidating, this last little charge. Bob, I'll go to Africa before I work with a teenager. <laughs> Just no grace on it. I mean, that's you. Well, there are tensions and there are gaps. Got a great quote for you. They, they, they think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. How many people have ever felt that about younger people? Yeah, but the problem is this was, this was the quote of Aristotle about 350 years before Christ. Seems like this generational tension it's not just between millennials and boomers and Gen Xers and boomers or Gen Xers and, you know, and Gen Z and whatever we want to categorize sociologically. 
Okay, it just seems like this generation tension has been in the human race for a long, long time. Aristotle had issues. And he's old. In fact, he's really dead. <laughs> there are generation gaps. And there's really in our culture, there's five basic things that divide the generations. The first is this. You may not realize this, but world events that were experienced. You went through World War II, you went through the Depression, you're going to have a different worldview than the next generation. I mean, it's going to be night and day. How many of you had your parents or your grandparents talk to you when you were growing up, your boomers, about going through the Depression? I'll never forget, my mom, my mom, I took my mom to go to the movies. There was a bunch of us, we went to see Pearl Harbor, you remember the movie that they made a while back, and you know, my mom stood right next to me, and of course, it's, it's December 7th, and the, the, the zeros are coming down on Pearl Harbor. And I looked at my mom, and she's crossing herself. She's just, okay, it just, it triggered whatever that event was talking about. She, it, it brought back her own memories of December 7th, 1941. The Cold War. Now, boomers do know that one. You know, it's interesting, when I was in second grade, we, part of our conversations on the playground was basically what it would be like to get nuked. Because it was talked about all the time. I remember I could never listen to President Kennedy on the radio. A fear just always rose up in my heart. I'll never forget commercials. Commercials dealing with your bomb shelter and how to stock your bomb shelter. And this is going to happen. That was commercials. That was part of the news on the 6 o'clock news. Your bomb shelter. We weren't living in Ukraine. We were living in the United States of America. I remember I said to my mom, I was seven, Mom, I don't want to die. My mom was really compassionate. She says, Bob, we all have to die sooner or later. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mom. I appreciate that so much. It's helping me sleep at night. 9-11. Or all the assassinations we experienced in, in uh in the 60s, how many of you remember when John F. You were alive then when John F. Kennedy was shot? You knew where you were. Everyone knows where you were. Where 9-11, what happened in 9-11, where you were in that event, what took place. But we have a whole generation that's, you know, why do we have to stand so long in security lines? You know, they, they, they're not connected to what took place. It separates us. Social media and technology, and we all know that. It's, it's the way we relate. It's the way we relate, it, it, that we relate differently in one generation to another. You know, you got, you got Instagram, then you got TikTok, you got this, you got this, and you got this, and you got, it just keeps reproducing. And, and there's things like, I'm just getting, finding out what they were, like what's Snapchat? Don't even, you know, don't even waste your time. <laughs> Go to my son-in-law, Mort. Mort, what about this? Bob, don't waste your time on this. This is what you want to do. I'll never forget Ben Meckel, who's, you know, doing great down in Texas now. <clears throat> and... Uh, on, on church staff at a church down there as our youth pastor and I wanted him to call a parent and I followed up on did you do it yeah I, I, I reached out to her on Facebook got into my office I got a post-it note and I wrote down her phone number I walked into his office and I said old school <laughs> two different generations two different generations you know the, the generation tension is the the economics of each generation. I know a lot of us don't think about that, but listen to this statistic, that if you're 70 and above, and I won't have anybody raise their hands here today, <clears throat> if you're 70 and above, you're going to hand down by 2042 $70 million to the next generation. We have stockpiled wealth. A lot of factors contribute to that. 
But we are a, the wealthiest generation has ever been in the history's, in the history's nation. We, we, uh, we make up 27, I'm not 70 yet, I just say we, I'm coming there in three years. They, we, they make up 27% of wealth, and their wealth is equal to 157% of U.S. gross domestic product. Boomers make up to 53% of U.S. households and net worth. We hold the wealth. Millennials? They account for 5%. Sorry, guys. And so sometimes we don't see, okay, the discrepancy economically even sometimes divides us. We got young couples in the church. They want to buy a home. They're in the best place they can, but they can't even afford a home in Vancouver. You know, the inflation finally caught up to the Portland-Vancouver area. The appreciation of real estate on the West Coast finally caught up. And they're trying to find a place to live. And it's, it is difficult. They got a down payment ready to go, but the prices keep going up and they keep getting disqualified. You know, the rest of us are flipping houses and liquidating equity and living a great life. Sometimes that divides us. There's tension because of that. Social values and experiences. Older people have a greater reverence for history, it seems, than the younger generation. Never forget a great vacation. I took my family to D.C., New York, and uh, preached a couple places and, on the trip, and we were at Ellis Island. Now, my people came through Ellis Island. The records of my, my grandparents are in Ellis Island, the Zulovich branch of our family. What do my kids want to do? We want to go shopping. No, no, we're going to look at records, records. We're going we're gonna to look at our family, our heritage. Dad, we want to go shopping. My poor kids, I made them go to Gettysburg with me, and I made them march up Cemetery Ridge <laughs> all the way from where the Confederate troops came out of the trees to the place where they had hand-to-hand -hand combat in the rain. <laughs> what did Sue do? She went to a quilt shop. I mean, right here, right here, right here. This is where the Union Army flanked them over on the right. Dad, 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 we're soaked. Different social values and experiences. <laughs> and, of course, this leads to generation judging one another. So why should we have hope for the next generation? Well, here you go. Bible says in Psalm 145, verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. They shall do this. It's part of why the church is still here today. It's why we still have faith today, because that has taken place. Going on, Psalm 79, verse 13, but we, your people, the sheep of your pastor, will give thanks to you forever. Here it is. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Come on, I'm impressed. What the, the generation of young believers in the past 40 years, what they have birthed in worship in the body of Christ. Come on, from generation to generation, we recount your praise. Psalm 105, verse 8, he remembers his covenants forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. You know, the covenant that God made with Abraham, we are experiencing today. In you, all the people of the earth will be blessed. We're experiencing that all over the place. You know, I'm on the phone with international leaders all the time. 
People are getting saved in the weirdest places out of the most horrible situations and they are more demonized than you have ever thought that someone could be demonized, but they come to Jesus because from generation to a thousand generations, that covenant is in effect. And I love what Mary said. She said, for he has looked on the humble estate in her, in her Magnificat. He, she's looked at the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 2,000 years later, we still remember Mary. Now, I know we have some disagreements of her nature and her makeup and some aspects of Christendom. But everybody thinks about Mary, the handmaiden, the bore the Son of God, when he became man, and we call her blessed. She was blessed. She was honored because she was the one who brought the Messiah into the earth. 2,000 years later, that's been proclaimed. From generation to generations, we call her blessed. Now, how do I inspire the next generations to bring this home? Well, first is this. You gotta, you gotta believe in the next generation. The Lord is good, steadfast love endures forever, and notice this, his faithfulness to all generations. His faithfulness, he's gonna be faithful to this generation. Kids these days, he's gonna be faithful to those kids. But Bob, he's gonna be faithful to those kids. My most embarrassing moment as a youth leader, it was at a youth camp, Sometimes I lost my cool with some teenagers. There was a teenager from another youth group who just had an attitude a mile wide. And, uh, and uh, he was on the last row, and I was the second to last row, and I had my finger in his chest. I was so mad at this kid for his behavior. As I'm poking my finger in his chest, he, he left my presence. He left me poking open air. Because the camp speaker had a word of knowledge. There's a young man here when he described the right knee where he was hurt. And this kid had that damaged right knee. He left me while I was chewing him out. How dare him? And he went down and he got healed. Now, you want to feel like a worm? <laughs> Chew somebody out while Jesus heals him. Seems like Jesus just loved him just a little bit more than me. Had a lot more grace with them than me. Had a lot more faith in the next generation than me. It was, it was a humbling experience. That's what I love about prophetic commissioning. Because God reveals his thoughts towards people and says the same things about them that you know about them, but it's with a different bent, a different perspective, a different heart, and it changes you towards them. You have to become contagious. I love what Paul says, what you've learned and received and heard, and I love this, you've seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's a, quite a statement. Seen in me. Are you, am I, following the Lamb where he's going in my life and in your life? Are my kids seeing, my grandkids, now it's my grandkids, but he's still my kids and my neighbors and people that I, that I mentor, do they see it in me? Or am I just a bag of wind? You have to take the initiative. You know, we love him because he, because he first loved us. We love because he loved us. We're responding to his initiative. That's going to come down to you. You go to them. It may be awkward. Did a weekend retreat, a church in Spokane, brought in a 
kind of a halfway house of these boys, kind of residential, you know, program. They were in foster care. Rough boys, about 10 of them, part of the weekend camp. There was a kid in line. I decided to try to make a relationship with him, and he had wrestling shoes on. I said, hey, man, great, great shoes or wrestling shoes, man. I, you wrestle? You wouldn't talk to me. Tried a number of different things to connect. Wouldn't say a word to me. That was Friday night, Saturday morning. Wouldn't say a word. Saturday afternoon, I was playing some football with some of the kids and out in the field, and I dropped a pass, and he was on the sidelines. He goes, ha, 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 you dropped it. And I said, I got him. I got him. That night, as the altar call came, he ran out the door. The counselors wouldn't let him leave, and then he ran straight to the altar, gave his life to Jesus, and got baptized in the Holy Spirit. You got to go after, you got to break through. You ever try to just sit down sometimes with a young person, have a talk, and you, you separate 45 minutes, have this conversation, and it's over in 90 seconds. How you doing? Mm-hmm. What do you want to do here, you know, this weekend? Mm-hmm. Every question falls to the ground like a lead balloon. I'm telling you, you think, well, that was a waste of time. No, it's never a waste of time. It's never a waste of time. You're opening their hearts. Come on, you have to, you have to engage. Lanny brought this to us when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men that were, they were, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I used to teach when I was a youth pastor, the key to youth ministry is the word with, word with. And on my, on my office, a huge sign took up the whole wall. I had a statement, it was a question. And it was this, have you had a Coke with a kid today? There's just something about, I love you, I'm interested in you. It may take time for us to cultivate this thing, but I'm interested in you. We got to get interested in the next generation, amen? And we got to let the fire of God burn in our lives. We got to go where the Lamb's leading us, and they got to see it in us so we can inspire the same lifestyle.